Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 9. Last week, I finally finished the summary of the book of Exodus, which ends with the completion of the tabernacle. If you missed that episode, well, really any of those summary episodes, you should go back and give them a listen. This week, I'm covering the history of the writing of the book and the alternate theories about its authorship. And with that, let's get started. So, who wrote Exodus? Jewish tradition is that the Pentateuch was written by Moses, with the exception of the last eight verses of Deuteronomy, with those having been written by Joshua, where he describes Moses' death and burial. Alternatively, Rashi, an 11th century AD rabbi and scholar, believed that, and this is a quote, God spoke them, and Moses wrote them with tears, end quote. Moses, as the author, is the Jewish tradition, with the Torah being dictated to Moses by God. Of course, this theory was also adopted by Christian scholars. Today, many biblical scholars accept the theory that the Pentateuch does not have a single author, and that its composition took place over centuries. And, to be clear, I'm not proposing that this is my belief, not that my beliefs matter, nor that you should subscribe to it either. But, recognize that it is a belief held by some, so pay attention, if merely so that you're aware of it, just in case you run across it in your life and studies. And with that disclaimer, the theory. What is called the documentary hypothesis suggests that the book was derived from originally independent, parallel, and complete narratives, which were subsequently combined into the current form by a series of editors. The number of these narratives is usually four, but the count is not an essential part of the hypothesis. The theory was first proposed in the 18th and 19th centuries AD, and stemmed from attempts to reconcile the perceived inconsistencies in the biblical text. More on a few of those inconsistencies in a minute. Biblical scholars, using what is called source criticism, eventually arrived at the theory that the books were composed of selections woven together from separate, at times inconsistent, sources, each originally a complete and independent document. By the end of the 19th century, it was generally agreed that there were four primary sources combined into their final form by a series of editors. Julius Wellhausen, a German biblical scholar of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, proposed the order of the sources chronologically, sometimes abbreviated by the letters J-E-D-P. And, in this acronym, the J stands for the Yahweh's source. And before you write in, I know that Yahweh is spelled in English with a Y, but that wasn't his native tongue. The E is for the Elohist source, the D is for the Deuteronomist source, and the P is for a priestly source. I'll cover what these were more specifically in a minute. The theory was based on an idea first proposed by Jean Astruc in the 18th century. He also placed them in the context of the evolving religious history of Israel which he viewed as having an ever-increasing priestly power. 
Astruc thought that writing itself did not develop until about 1000 BC. So it would have been impossible for the books to have been written before that time. Now, early in the second chapter of the podcast, and far too many episodes to list, I've covered writing that dates far before that date. And, considering when he conducted his studies, the proposed date is, well, dumbfounding. After all, it had been well established that the Egyptians were writing, via hieroglyphics, well before 1000 BC. Wellhausen assumed that sagas, epics, poetry, etc., which were later used to compile the Bible, were passed down orally for millennia. Wellhausen's proposal was that there was a Yahweh source, written around 950 BC, in the southern kingdom of Judah, specifically at the court of Solomon. More recent research suggests that it was written by a Jewish priest, just before or during the Babylonian exile of the 6th century BC. This was the J in JEDP. Next, there was an Elois source, written around 850 BC in the northern kingdom of Israel. This was the E. After that, there was the Deuteronomist source, written about 600 BC in Jerusalem during a period of religious reform. Of course, this was the D in JEDP. And last, there was a priestly source, written around 500 BC and thought to be authored by Ezra. More recently, proponents of the JEDP hypothesis believe that the final edition was made later, in what is known as the Exilic period, or soon thereafter. The Exilic period essentially corresponds with the Babylonian exile in the 7th century BC. So then the question becomes, how did they come up with this? Scholars use a few repeated and duplicate stories to identify the separate sources. In Genesis, these include three different accounts of a patriarch claiming that his wife was his sister. Of these, two were from Abraham and one from Isaac. And there are also the two different creation stories. In the last 40 years, biblical scholars have proposed an additional theory, specifically that the Elois source is now widely regarded as no more than a variation on the Yahwist while the priestly source is increasingly seen not as a separate document, but as a body of revisions and expansions to the Yahwehist material. In this theory, specifically in the writing of the patriarchal history, the Yahwehist drew from four separate segments of traditional stories about Abraham, Jacob, Judah, and Joseph, combining them with genealogies, itineraries, and the motif of God's promise to create a unified whole. Similarly, some scholars believe that when the Yahwehist composed the early history, he drew on Greek and Mesopotamian sources, editing and adding to them to create a unified work that fit with his theological agenda. The Yahwehist work was then revised and expanded into the final edition by the authors of the priestly source. But, as I covered in Chapter 2, Episodes 3 and 4, the ones on the creation stories. The story in Genesis is not only similar to the Greek and Mesopotamian creation stories, but it is also somewhat similar to Native American creation stories. This, as you would correctly suspect, 
was not explained in the JEDP hypothesis. After all, it is absolutely certain that no matter when the priestly source documented the creation story, whoever this priest was did not have access to any Native American renderings. Interestingly, the Deuteronomist is also viewed by many scholars as the source of the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Jeremiah. While the JEDP hypothesis was increasingly challenged by other models in the latter part of the 20th century, its terminology and insights continue to provide the framework for modern theories on the origins of the Pentateuch. Of course, assuming you don't believe that Moses wrote it. Keep in mind that the common belief is not that the four sources invented the material from whole cloth, but that they combined many different sources into one. And this is key to keep in mind. In many ways, it isn't terribly different from how the modern English translations of the New Testament are constructed. In contrast, the so-called tablet theory suggests that portions of Genesis were originally written on clay tablets by men who personally experienced the events described. The tablets were later compiled by Moses. Since the original writers were said to be eyewitnesses, their accounts should be historically accurate. I describe this theory in good detail in the second chapter of the podcast in episode 2. There have been some contemporary scholars that counter the four-source theory with their own. One such scholar is David Hoffman, a German rabbi, who in his commentary on Leviticus defended Moses' authorship against the work of Wellhausen and others. In his book, and it has a German title, so just assume I would so badly mispronounce it that it's not worthwhile. Anyway, he pointed out several difficulties in the Wellhausen hypothesis, primarily in his theory that the priestly code, and hence the Jewish conception of monotheism, was of late post-exilic editing. Hoffman's approach to the biblical investigation is still being studied. Also, Menachem Mendel Kasher, a Polish rabbi who later studied in Jerusalem, focused on certain traditions of the Oral Torah, specifically those that show Moses quoting Genesis prior to arriving at Sinai. Based on this, he suggests that Moses made use of documents authored by the patriarchs when editing Genesis. In his book, Revelation Restored, Rabbi David Weiss Halivni developed a theory called Shita Israel, which literally translates to Israel has sinned. In this work, he says, and I quote, According to the biblical account itself, the people of Israel forsook the Torah. In the dramatic episode of the Golden Calf, only 40 days after the revelation at Sinai, from that point on until the time of Ezra, the scriptures reveal that the people of Israel were steeped in idolatry and negligent of the Mosaic law." End quote. His book goes on to state that the period of neglect and the combination of Judaism with other regional religions, all after the conquest of Canaan, when the originally monotheistic Israelites adopted pagan practices from their neighbors, the Torah of Moses became blemished and stained. Now keep in mind that what Christians refer to as the Pentateuch, 
Jewish people use the word Torah. They are largely the same. And this is where his theory gets more interesting. According to Halivni, the idolatry and paganism continued until the time of Ezra, sometime around 450 BC, when at last, upon their return from Babylon, the people accepted the Torah. It was at that time that the previously rejected and therefore blemished text of the Torah was recompiled and edited by Ezra and his compatriots. Halivni claims that his theory is supported by the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He also supports his theory with Talmudic and Midrashic sources which indicate that Ezra played a role in editing the Torah. He goes on to state that while the text of the Torah was corrupted, oral tradition preserved intact many of the laws, which is why the oral law appears to contradict the biblical text in certain details. As you would suspect, this theory was not without its critics. In fact, it was condemned in a declaration signed by many prominent Orthodox rabbis and published in the ultra-Orthodox Yetnor Easterman, as it was seen as being in direct contradiction to Maomendis' 13 principles of faith, which are universally accepted by all Orthodox Jews. The eighth principle, and the one most appropriate for their view, is that, quoting, the Torah that we have today is the one that was dictated to Moses by God. Now these 13 principles were compiled in the 12th century AD by rabbi and scholar Moses ben Mayam. As a Christian, you've probably never heard of him. But in the Jewish faith, he is seen by many as being only second to Moses himself. And with that, now you know that religious infighting is not limited to Christians. Back to the authorship. There are four major textual sources that document the Pentateuch, and therefore the Book of Exodus. These are the Masoretic Text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, and fragments of Genesis found at Qumran. The Qumran group provides the oldest manuscripts, but includes only a small portion of the book of Genesis and nothing for Exodus or the other three books. In general, the Masoretic text is well preserved, but there are many individual instances where the other versions preserve an enhanced reading. As for why the book was created, a theory which has gained considerable interest, although very, very controversial, is Persian imperial authorization. This theory proposes that the Persians, after their conquest of Babylon in 538 BC, agreed to grant Jerusalem a large measure of local autonomy within the empire, but required the local authorities to produce a single law code accepted by the entire community. The two powerful groups making up this community, namely the priestly families who controlled the temple and who traced their origin to Moses, and the wilderness wanderings, and the other group being the major landowning families who made up the elders and who traced their own origins to Abraham, who had given these families the land. Well, these two groups were in conflict over many issues, and each had its own history of their familial origin. But the Persian promise of a greatly increased local autonomy for all, 
provided a powerful incentive to cooperate in producing a single text. I'm guessing the controversy around this theory needs no explanation. Finally, in 1978, David Kleins, a professor of biblical studies at the University of Sheffield in Great Britain, published his book titled The Theme of the Pentateuch. His book was influential because he was one of the first to take up the question of the theme of the entire five books. Klein's conclusion was that the overall theme is the partial fulfillment, which also implies the partial non-fulfillment of the promise to or blessing of the patriarchs. In his calling the fulfillment partial, Klein's was drawing attention to the fact that at the end of Deuteronomy, the people are still outside of Canaan. To this basic plot, commonly thought to be from the Yahwehist, the priestly source has added a series of covenants dividing the history into stages, each with its own distinctive sign. The first covenant is between God and all living creatures and is marked by the sign of the rainbow. The second is with the descendants of Abraham, including the so-called Ishmaelites and others as well as the Israelites and its sign is circumcision. And the last sign, which does not make its appearance until the book of Exodus, is with Israel alone, and its sign is the Sabbath. Each covenant is mediated by a great leader, such as Noah, Abraham, and Moses, and at each stage God progressively reveals himself by his name. Elohim with Noah, El Shaddai with Abraham, and Yahweh with Moses. If you're reading any of the Bible versions I use for the podcast, you will only find the name El Shaddai in the footnotes of the New Revised Standard and the New International Versions. In the text, those two versions translate the name into English as the phrase, I am God Almighty. The King James Version adds a word and reorders it so that the phrase is, I am the Almighty God. Fast forwarding to the New Testament. In the books of Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus and the Gospel writers said that the law, meaning various parts of the Pentateuch, were given by Moses, and the uniform tradition of the Jewish scribes and early Christian fathers, and the conclusion of many conservative scholars to the present day, is that Genesis was written by Moses. But, according to some, This does not exclude the possibility that Moses had access to patriarchal records preserved by being written on clay tablets and handed down from father to son via the line of Adam to Seth, Noah to Shem, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and so on, or from others who witnessed the events documented in the text, or even that the events were described by someone who took on a role similar to that of Luke in the New Testament. If this is so, the most likely explanation for the existence of the clay tablets is that Adam, Noah, Shem, and all of the others each wrote down an account of the events which occurred in his lifetime, and Moses selected and compiled these, along with his own comments, into the book we now know as Genesis. The theory also proposes that of its constituent sources, Deuteronomy is generally dated between the 7th and 5th centuries where there was much discussion of the unity, extent, nature, and date of the priestly material. And finally, 
There are some who believe that Genesis developed separately and distinctly from Exodus, and that the two were joined together by the priestly writer. On a different note, it is commonly believed that enough archaeological confirmation has been found so that many historians now consider the Old Testament, at least that part after about the 11th chapter of Genesis, to be somewhat historically correct. Of course, the more recent the events documented in the text, the more it aligns with what archaeologists have uncovered. So, you may be wondering which theory I subscribe to. That really doesn't matter, and quite honestly, I've come to accept that I will never know which is historically correct. I've also come to accept that none of these theories impact my beliefs about God. But, they are all, to differing degrees, interesting. Now, there are two other somewhat widely accepted hypotheses on the writing of the Pentateuch, what are known as the fragmentary and the supplementary theories. And, these are frequently combined with the documentary model. There are some modern scholars who see the completed Torah as the product of the time of the Achaemenid Empire, so sometime around 450 to 350 BC. To be clear, though, there are some who subscribe to this theory who propose that the Pentateuch was produced either in the Hellenistic, meaning Greek, period, so between 333 and 164 BC, or the Hasmonean dynasty, which was between 140 and 37 BC. The supplementary hypothesis basically proposes that the Pentateuch was derived from a series of direct additions to an existing work. So, in reality, the supplementary hypothesis is essentially a revision of the earlier documentary hypothesis. The supplementary hypothesis came into existence during the 19th and 20th centuries. Its leading proponent was John Van Setters, who in the 1970s wrote that the three sources are literary strata within the Pentateuch, which have become known as the Yahwist, the Priestly Writer, and the Deuteronomist. Van Setters ordered these sources chronologically as DJP, of course leaving out the Elohist source. In his proposal, the Deuteronomist source was probably written around 700 BC, the Yahweh source around 600 BC during the Exilic period, and the Priestly source around 400 BC in the post-Exilic period. A major driver of this reassessment has been the evolving understanding of the historical context of the early Israelites. Biblical estimates put the earliest activity of the Israelites in Canaan around the 13th century BC, with Joshua's conquest. However, archaeologists have found no evidence of a distinct Israelite people in the region at this time, at least so far. Some archaeologists and biblical researchers suggest that most of the places referred to by the name in the Bible, most notably Jerusalem, reflect much later 7th century BC realities. Therefore, according to the supplementary hypothesis, if there were no distinct group of Israelite people until the 7th century, the authorship of the Pentateuch is likely to have occurred in the 7th century and later. The lack of earlier archaeological evidence has led some recent Pentateuch scholars to discard earlier documentarian claims of 10th century authorship, substituting a later composition date, aka the supplementary hypothesis. 
which begs what should be a very simple question. How are the two hypotheses, the JEDP and the supplementary, different? Obviously, and like I mentioned earlier, the supplementary hypothesis excludes the Elois source. But why? Well, it explains that the Yahweh source was derived from many written and oral traditions, thereby taking these and blending them into this Yahweh source. Since this source is compiled from many earlier traditions and stories, documentarians most likely misidentified this complimation as having multiple authors, namely the Yahwehist and the Elohist. Instead, the supplementary hypothesis proposes that what documentarians consider J and E are in fact a single source probably written in the 6th century BC. Second, the supplementary hypothesis offers that the different Deuteronomist was the original and therefore earliest Pentateuch writer, probably written at the end of the 7th century BC. In this timeline, the Yahwehist would have written during the Exilic period, around 540 BC, and the Priestly in the post-Exilic period, around 400 BC. Van Setter drew his research from Frank Moore Cross, who in 1968 suggested that the Deuteronomist originated from what he deemed to be dual redactors, people we would refer to as editors. In this, a 7th century BC author, along with a 6th century BC Deuteronomist, both revised earlier authors and in doing so, infused the text with a theme of punishment. And why would they do this? Well, according to the theory, it was to help explain what to them was the current Babylonian exile. This dual redactor view is thought to be the most commonly held current theory among some biblical scholars. Van Setters explained his theory as simply an emphasis on 7th century BC reform and on 6th century exile, with the book of, quoting, Deuteronomy consisting of an older nucleus with later expansions, end quote. His views were supported by Hans Heinrich Schmid, a 20th century Swiss Protestant Reformed theologian and professor, who in 1976 posited that the Yahwehist was aware of the earlier religious writings of the 8th and 7th centuries BC, making the JEDP assessment of J as a 10th century work untenable. So, overall, the supplementary hypothesis considers the Deuteronomist to be the first author, while the JEDP considers him to be later. And last, and quickly, there's the fragmentary hypothesis. It was first proposed by Alexander Geddes, an 18th century Scottish Roman Catholic priest. His theory was essentially that the Pentateuch was not written by Moses, but was probably compiled during the reign of King Solomon in Jerusalem. He also proposed that the Pentateuch was better understood as a hexateuch, so not five books, but instead six, which includes the book of Joshua. He also disavowed a supernatural Christianity, believing instead that human reason itself is the only solid pillar of faith. Soon after publication, Geddes's work was expanded on by John Severin Vater, a late 18th and early 19th century German biblical scholar, 
Vatra proposed that the Pentateuch grew gradually from individual fragments. He claimed that there were at least 38 such fragments, and he also suggested that the book of Deuteronomy dated from the reigns of kings David and Solomon. And that's just as good of a place as any to end this episode. Join me next week when I'll begin the history of the Egyptians, a task of which I am unsure exactly how long it will take. But I do know it certainly cannot be covered in one week. Anyway, you don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, and I know I've said this many, many times, and it certainly still is true, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later and you get updates. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.